Well, good morning again. Great to see you all here. Go ahead and grab a copy of God's Word. Make your way to 1 Samuel chapter 1. We start this new series, like Charlie had mentioned, Prophets, Priests, and Kings. Coming out of the series on the Lord's Prayer, where we looked at several different portions of the Lord's Prayer, and, and it's continuing to focus on our desire for us as a church to grow in greater and in deeper ways in prayer in 2023. And just because we're moving away from the Lord's Prayer does not mean in any sense that we're moving away from our focus on prayer. You're going to see it today as we look at 1 Samuel. But not just in 1 Samuel, uh, you'll see starting, I believe it's next week, we're going to have out in the Welcome Center 40 Days of Prayer. And this little booklet of 40 Days of Prayer is going to be a resource for you to take uh, to pray for 40 days leading up to Easter. So if you grab this book next week and you actually start on March 1st, uh, you can actually pray a prayer each day leading up to Easter to kind of prepare your heart and hopefully to grow your, your prayer in some deeper ways. Uh, this 40 days of prayer I'm excited about because this booklet's going to have a passage of scripture to kind of jumpstart your mind. And then you're going to see uh, some prayers from kind of elders, veterans of the past in church history called Puritans. And in there, you're going to be able to read their prayers, which are really rich prayers that uh, I pray regularly that you kind of strengthen and, uh, and push my prayer forward. So I hope that's a great resource for you that you'll find next Sunday out in the Welcome Center for you to pick up. All right, 1 Samuel. Now before we read in chapter 1, I kind of want to give us the bookends around 1 Samuel because it's going to help us. I don't know about you, but at least for me, when you come to this section of the Old Testament, it can be a little confusing about what's going on here and and uh, having the context really helps us to understand what God's Word is communicating to us. So what we find is that before this is the book of Judges. Now the book of Judges covers a long period of time, like years and years and years. And they are dark, dark times. If you've ever tried to read the book of Judges in like your personal Bible reading time during the week, like it could be a struggle, right? Like it's a lot of death and suffering and pain and you're like, oh my goodness, this is a hard book to like get my personal daily Bible reading out of. But it, it, it's intentionally showing that these were dark times where God had told his people, I want to make a covenant with you, a commitment with you, where you love me and you love others. And then we find that God's people say, nope, we're going to love ourselves instead of loving you, and we're not going to love others. And so it just brings all this pain and suffering. And then on the other side, the other bookend for the book of Samuel is First and Second Kings. Now, once again, this goes through different generations of kings and how they led. A, a very few number were good kings, and there were a lot of bad kings. And so on both sides of the book of Samuel, you find a lot of generations and a lot of brokenness and a lot of pain and a lot of darkness. And then here in 1 Samuel, what we'll find is that the Bible slows down. It's not covering... Years and years and hundreds of years and generations upon generations, it's primarily covering just three men, Samuel, Saul, and David. Now this is important to us because what this book is, is it is a small glimmer of light and a very dark, dark time. And so as it slows down to focus on these three guys... It's meant to give us a glimmer of hope in the midst of darkness. So that's kind of the, the bookends of it. And we'll start here in Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. And this is what the word of the Lord says. 
There was a certain man of Ramathaim of Zophim, the hill country of Ephraim. <laughs> Sounds like something you could get at your local pharmacy, right? <laughs> weird names. And it's about to get some more weird names in here. Whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tuhu, son of Zuf, the Ephratite. And he had two wives. <laughs> We don't even make it past verse 2, and you already see brokenness and pain that's here that we'll talk about in a little more detail in a second. But it says this. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year to the city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, which you get to chapter 3 and chapter 2, We'll talk about those guys a little bit. Sad story there. But they were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously and irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she provoked her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat before the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed. Now look what she does with her deep, distressed heart. Verse 10, it says, and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but also give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, and only her lips moved. Her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli, the priest, said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put the wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of great vexation and anxiety. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way, and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Then she rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Pray with me now. Lord, we praise you for you are praiseworthy. 
You are the Lord who is almighty. You're the Lord of hosts. You are holy and a rock that is firmly fixed throughout all ages. You are all of those things. And yet you are faithful also to hear our prayers. The prayers of those who are weak. The prayers of those who are sinful. Thank you for hearing our prayers. And we ask that you would hear our prayers now. That you would comfort us through your word. Lord, would you convict us through your spirit? Would you change us according to your steadfast love? Now, would you pray something similar to God this morning in this time of silence? Pray to him now. Pray for me also as we look at Hannah's life and Hannah's prayer that I would be able to apply it to us today well to the glory of God's name. Pray for me. Lord Jesus, help us to be people who run to you in prayer. And see you do amazing things for your name and your fame. Amen. Amen. All right, three uh, practical applications for us this morning from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1. And we'll get a little bit into chapter 2 this morning. And the first application is this. Praying our pain has potential in the Lord. Praying our pain has potential in the Lord. The Lord. Now, Hannah in here multiple times talks about her pain and her suffering. The, the, the author writes and highlights these things for us using different words and different expressions. But in verse 10, it says she is deeply distressed and that she wept bitterly. These words are words of deep anguish. They literally mean pain of the soul. Not just of the body and of the mind, but her soul is in, is in pain. And she's weeping and she's praying. Verse 16 says that she has anxiety. There's anxiety in her heart and she has vexation. All of these things are pressing down and pushing on this woman named Hannah. Now, what is it? What is it that's causing this anxiety, this vexation? What is this that's causing this great distress of her heart? Well, I believe this passage tells us a, a number of things. And first is what I mentioned in verse 2, where it says this, this family life, this creates stress and anxiety in her life. It says that there are two wives to this man, Elkanah. Now, you need to hear clearly that there are many times the Bible describes something, and it's not prescribing something. It's not saying that polygamy is right. And some people will be like, well, hey, it's all in the Bible. Why was God okay with polygamy in the Old Testament, but he's not okay with it in the New Testament? And they'll ask that, I'll say, what made you think that God was okay with it in the Old Testament? Because if you read, anytime you see polygamy, you see that there's a brokenness, you see that there's pain, you see that there's suffering. Like, never was it anywhere in the Bible something that was good. This is not God's design. From the very creation, it wasn't God's design. And even in the New Testament, you see it reiterated. 
And God tells his people in Deuteronomy 17, he says to the leaders, if you have multiple wives, it will pull your heart away from loving and following the Lord and the kingdom will follow. God says that in Deuteronomy 17 and sadly that's what we're going to find as we go through the book of 1 Samuel. So God is not saying that this is the norm, this is a good thing. No, this is a broken thing. This is not the way that it was meant to be. And because of that, now there's a competition between these two wives of Hannah and Peninnah. And this leads us to kind of the second point of pain and suffering in Hannah's life. See, Peninnah looks at her with this competition, and she's like, Ha, I've got kids, and Hannah, you don't have kids. And what's fascinating is if you read it, this is not a one-time comment. It says year after year in verse 7. This continued to happen. Year after year, she, she continues to mock and make fun of and push down Hannah because she does not have children. Now, in any generation, in any generation, it's hard for a woman to not be able to have children or to be barren. This is difficult, but even more so at this point in this season. Because at this time, children literally were, were a benefit to society. It's where jobs came from, and it's where military power came from. It's where retirement would come from. They didn't have savings accounts and 401ks. They could put all these things in, and so you had kids, and as you aged, they would take care of you. So it was your retirement as well. And that's even on top of just the, the love and care and the family life that you would want to have. And so this is a, a very painful and difficult thing. Now, I know that as I stand up here, like, talking about barrenness, like, this is outside of my lane. I get that. Like, I know I'm a man, and so I don't understand the pain that, that Hannah is experiencing, nor some of you. But I have met, and I've, I've, I've counseled, and I've prayed with families that walk through this. And let me just say that this, this pain is a, it's, it's a deep pain. It's, it's even hard to put words to this kind of pain, of this barrenness that Hannah is experiencing. It, it's difficult. It's difficult to put into words this kind of pain and suffering, even if everything else was going well in your life. And Hannah is struggling with that. She is deeply distressed by things within the family and the lack of having kids. But this teaches us something very important that we have to understand and grasp today. And it's this. Can you be loved by God and still struggle? And the answer is yes. You can be loved by God and still have brokenness that's in your life and pain and suffering and things not working out according to your plan. You can struggle and still be loved by God. That's not the question. The question we have to ask is, where do we take our pain and our struggle when we experience it? Hannah takes it to the Lord in prayer. The temptation for many of us is to doubt that, that God is even there in dark days and in dark times. And so we start to wander away from, the God, wander away from God or punt the idea of God during dark seasons, but not Hannah. Verse 10 says, when she's greatly distressed and she's weeping, she prayed to the Lord. Hannah moves closer to God in her pain, not away from God. 
She clings to the Lord instead of pushing the Lord away. In the scripture, pain was never a deterrent of our faith. Never. In the Bible, the theme is that God is near to those who suffer. He is faithful to those in great pain and disappointment. And so our pain and our suffering should drive us towards the one who gives us comfort, not away from him. I mean, think about the people we know within the scripture that have experienced pain and suffering and how they moved towards God and not away from him and found comfort and peace and a growth in faith. If you look in the New Testament, a prophet named John the Baptist, the one that Jesus said that there was no greater one born of woman who's ever walked the earth, which is high, high praise, right? Because that would include everybody except for Adam in the garden, right? He's like, this guy is one of the top of the line. This is the best dude. This is the best prophet. And you see John the Baptist go through struggles and end up in prison. And while he's in prison and he's struggling and his pain and his suffering, he starts to doubt a little bit. And he sends one of his friends to go tell Jesus, hey, are you really the Messiah? Are you the one who's going to come here and to rescue? Are you the one who's going to save us from our sins? Are you the Messiah? He starts to struggle a little bit. And Jesus gives him words of affirmation, and he brings it back to John the Baptist to deepen his faith, to encourage him. You see, in the midst of his suffering, he didn't say, well, Jesus just gave up on me. I'm done with Jesus. Forget him. I'll just deny him, and I'll get out of jail. No, he went to Christ and found comfort even as he was led to death. Now, we'll see here in in chapter 2, later on in 1 Samuel, this guy Eli, who we read about in chapter 1, the priest at that time, he's going to have a lot of pain and a lot of suffering that that comes into his life. And one of them is that his his kids, Hophni and Phinehas, that we saw in chapter 1, they don't believe in God. And they're literally leading the church, which is a sad, sad picture. And we find God's word in chapter 2 actually says that these were worthless men who did not know the Lord. They do a lot of crooked and perverse stuff. And Eli sees that. And even though his kids have wandered away from the Lord, Eli doesn't say, well, God, you didn't save my kids. You didn't make them who I wanted them to be. And I'm done with you. I'm done with you. All this pain because my kids aren't following you, then I'm just out. No, we'll see that Eli actually leans into the Lord and trusts the Lord, Lord's plans. And says, Lord, it's your will and it's your way. He doesn't run from God. He runs to God. One that we're really familiar with, King David. He had a lot of difficulty in life. Some of it was self-induced pain, right, of bad decisions that he made. But either way, it didn't push God away from him. In those hardships, in those pains, he didn't drive God away, but he ran towards God. You see, this is a pattern all throughout Scripture that in our pain that we would pray to the Lord. See, Hannah, nor David, nor Eli, nor John the Baptist equated a a lack of cooperation from God as an absence from God. None of them were like, God, you didn't do what I wanted you to do. And so you're an absent God, you're, you're, you're too far away, you don't care about my life. None of them lived that way. They knew that God can disagree and, and is a sovereign God above all, and he is still trustworthy even though he doesn't cooperate with me. Even though he doesn't do things the exact way that I would want them to. And guys, we, we logically think the same way in earthly terms. 
all of us that have gone through the teenage years knows that there's times where you look at your dad or you look at your mom and you disagree with them. They're not cooperating and doing what you wanted them to do or to allow you to do what you wanted to do, right? And I bet you, none of you, none of you have ever said, well, then my mom and my dad don't exist. They don't exist. They, they, they're not doing what I wanted them to do. They're not cooperating, and so they do not exist. Like, no, our minds don't work that way. And it's the same with our Heavenly Father. Just because things might not align perfectly, just because there's suffering and pain in our life, does not mean that God does not exist. No, He is here, and He is active. And that's what the Bible is teaching. The Bible is teaching, take your suffering and take your, your prayers to the Lord, for He hears And as he hears, it unlocks massive, massive potential. Now, you might say, Ryan, I'm not seeing where you're talking about massive potential in this passage. Like, this seems like something really, really small. Like, this lady can't have a kid, and she wants to have a kid, and so God blesses and gives him a kid. We might read this and think this is something small, but put it in the grander narrative. Put it in the picture of what's going on. Think about this. We're in the midst of the times of the judges, right? Kings is on the horizon. And here in the middle, as God starts a monarchy, and as a nation starts to take form and starts to change, God does not choose a a world influencer to make all this stuff happen. God doesn't choose somebody who's famous or somebody who's extremely important that we're like... That's the person that God should be doing all of this. As God changes and impacts the whole nation, he has to have somebody famous, somebody who's charismatic, somebody who has everything together. This is the person that we need. So 1 Samuel should have started with that, right? It doesn't. All this massive change happens because of one single woman from a small town who has pain and suffering in her life, and she prays. She prays, and God looks at this singular woman and her suffering and her pain and says, yes, I hear your prayers, and yes, I'm going to answer your prayers, and I'm going to help your son bring this monarchy into place, which ultimately is going to be fulfilled with Christ our King who comes. We're going to see that Christ is the fulfillment of all of this that we find in 1 Samuel of the king and the monarchy, the true and better king that will come. And it all starts with this woman's prayers. Man, this tells us the heartbeat of God. The heartbeat of God. So yes, do your singular prayers matter over something that seems so small? Yes. Your pain and your suffering as prayers to the Lord have massive potential in the hands of the Lord. And that's what he does for Hannah. That's what he does. But get this. It's not just with Hannah. This is a pattern. This is the pattern of the goodness and grace of God. Remember Sarah from Genesis chapter 11? A barren woman who desired a child And God blesses Sarah with a child that would lead a nation. Then Rebecca in Genesis 25 and Rachel in Genesis 29, same story. Judges 13, you see Samson's mom praying to the Lord. If you read the Bible, you'll see over and over again, God tends to use barren women in key moments of redemptive history. We'll even see that to be true when we get to the New Testament with Elizabeth. 
You see, God looks at our inability and our weakness and our pain, and he brings forth amazing acts of wonder. This is what God does. This is how our God works. See, Hannah doesn't just set a standard by praying her pain, but also by trusting through her pain, trusting the Lord through her pain. And so, yes, application, pray to God in the midst of your pain, but also when we're praying our pain, we'll see point two is this, it will grow our trust in the Lord. If we're willing to take that bold step of faith to pray our pain, not retreat from God, not pull back from God, but lean into God, we will find it will grow our trust, our faith in the Lord. I love what verse 11 says of 1 Samuel 1. Hannah praying, she says to the Lord of hosts. That is the first time that that term is used from the mouth of a person to describe the Lord, to describe God. That he is the Lord of hosts, which means he's the Lord of armies. That he is a warrior. That he is a fighter. That he is a strong and mighty God. And she prays that prayer. You are the Lord of hosts. This is a declaration of faith. That she still trusts in God in the darkest of moments. And you'll see that this trust and prayer to God continues in chapter 2. See, in chapter 1, you see Hannah's prayer of, of pain. In chapter 2, you see her prayer of praise to the Lord. And she starts to multiply this trust and the faith of the Lord. It starts to expand. And she doesn't just say he's the Lord of hosts. She says that he is the Lord of all. That he exalts people and he brings people low. That he, is, that he lifts the needy up from the, the, the ash heap. That he brings the prideful down. That he makes people rich and he makes people poor. That he's the Lord of life itself. He literally will raise people from the grave. He reigns over all things because he is the Lord of hosts. So in her pain, she is still trusting in the reality of who God is. She also has a firm grasp on who she is. See, God uses pain in our lives a lot of times to help us to see that we are weak and we are needy and that we need him. And in verse 11, she does say that he is the Lord of hosts, but she also calls herself three times the servant of the Lord. There's a sense of humility in Hannah's heart. Not that she would be lifted up, not that she would be honored, but that the Lord would be honored. See, God is changing her. God is sharpening her. He's cultivating her in the midst of her pain. And she prays, you're the Lord of hosts, and I am just the servant. Now, we might think that in verse 11 that she's making this bargain with God. She's not making a bargain with God because she has nothing to bargain with. <laughs> she has nothing. She's a servant of the Lord. Everything she has belongs to the Lord. So this is not a, hey, God, you do this and I'll do that. She has nothing to give to the Lord. And the very thing that she prays for is ultimately not for herself. It's for the Lord. There's a short statement at the end of verse 11 that says, and no razor shall touch his head. This is a Nazarene vow that you would make. 
And what that is saying is, God, if you bless me with a child, if you do answer this prayer and allow me to have a child, then every hope that I had for a child, that they would be that, that hope in retirement, that they would be there for the hugs and kisses, that they would be there to, to help work and provide income for our family, all those things I will take and I will lay them at your feet as I trust in you. You see, when she says that, I will give him to you and no razor shall touch his head. What that means is that literally you would give your child to the temple and the temple would raise your son. They would care for him and provide for him and teach him the ways of the Lord. And you might see your child once or twice a year. They didn't have this massive income to provide for you. They weren't there to to take care of you in retirement. No, that was a commitment that you're going to serve the Lord in the temple all the days of your life. And Hannah in her prayer, and looks at the Lord and says, you're the Lord of hosts, you're sovereign, I'm trusting in you so much so that the very thing that I feel like I want most, I will lay down at your feet that you would be glorified. That you would be glorified. <laughs> and do you see what happens? As God changes her heart, as she lays her, her soul before the Lord, it says in verse 19 that she rose early in the morning and she worshiped the Lord. This is, this is massive. This is massive for us to understand, okay? Because she's worshiping the Lord and God has not done anything for her request yet. God has not done anything that she wanted him to do yet. Nothing. She's worshiping God because of who he is. She's not worshiping God as a means to an end, but because he is the end himself. That that dialogue, that trust, that faith rests in him, not in a child, not in an answer to prayer, but in a trust in the Lord. And so literally, she worships the Lord without ever receiving an answer to her prayer yet. Before God has changed her dark moment, her dark situation, God has changed her. You see, it doesn't say, if you read this passage, it doesn't say that she prayed, she got pregnant, and then she had peace. That's not the order. It's not prayer, pregnant, now have peace. No, if you read it, it goes prayer. Verse 10, verse 11. Peace, verse 17, verse 18. Then verse 20, she's pregnant. See, she trusts in the Lord, regardless if her situation ever changes, because God has used the situation to change her, to transform her. And in verse 20, it says that she conceived a child in due time. You might want to circle that or underline that because most of us live in due time. And what I mean by that is some of us have prayed and prayed before the Lord and he has not answered our prayers yet. And we're sitting in the midst of pain year over year over year. And what we are is we are in due time. You see, God comes in his timing. And it does say in here that, that Elkanah came to know Hannah, his wife, but it doesn't say she conceived that day. It says in due time she conceived and bore son. We don't know how long that period of time was, but she's literally waiting on the Lord and resting and trusting in him. So what do we do? When we find ourselves in due time, what should we do? We should pray. 
Prayer is God's invitation for us to snatch our faith out of the hands of our circumstances and place them in the hands of a sovereign Savior. And that's what Hannah does. I love the description it gives of Hannah's prayer life in verse 15. It says that she poured out her soul. Could you describe your prayer like that? I mean, do you pray? And when you pray, do you pour out your soul? It doesn't mean just to say a prayer. That's not what I'm challenging. I'm saying pour out your soul. Do you see prayer as your first response or a last resort for your life? She sees it as a first response as she pours out her soul before the Lord. Do you pray with that kind of passion? Do you pray with the same intensity that you argue with your spouse? Do you pray the same length of time that you worry about your finances? Do you pray with the same intentionality that you would work at your job? That's what it looks like to practically pour out your soul before the Lord. And as we do that, as we pour out our soul before the Lord, we will find the same thing that Hannah found, that God is more than enough and our God hears our prayers. In verse 20, she names her son Samuel. And then it tells us why. I have asked for him from the Lord. Samuel, the name Samuel sounds like asked, but is literally translated heard by God. She's prayed in the midst of her pain. She's trusted in the Lord as more than enough, even without the circumstances changing. And then when she has changed circumstances, she says, it's all about God. It's everything he did. I prayed and he heard my prayer. So church, be encouraged. Is he the Lord of hosts? Yes. Is he the Holy One? Yes. Is he the rock of all ages? Absolutely. Is he the faithful one who hears our prayers and our pain and answers? Yes. This is who our God is. And Hannah's proclaiming that good news to us. She's proclaiming it. And she can proclaim that good news because she has found the salvation of the Lord. That's our third point. Praying our pain finds salvation in the Lord. Finds salvation in the Lord. You see, she praises God not for the child, but for the freedom she's found in the Lord. This is so important for us to see this truth because there's two other voices in 1 Samuel chapter 1 who speak ways to find that peace and that encouragement and that so-called salvation or freedom that, that she longs for. And in the Hebrew, the way it's written, it's really important because these two voices speak to Hannah in the midst of her pain. And Hannah does not speak back and respond to either one of those two voices until, until we see chapter 2 where she sings this praise song to the Lord. Now, the, the first voice that you find is uh, Peninnah, who is basically saying, hey, I'm going to mock you, I'm going to make fun of you, Hannah, because you don't have the very thing that gives me peace and gives me joy and gives me freedom in this life. You don't have kids. If you had kids, Hannah, that's where you'd really be free. That's where you'd really find your salvation and the joy that you're longing for. That's where you would find it. But Hannah does not respond to her voices except by going to the Lord in prayer. And then her husband, Elkanah, 
he also speaks to her in her pain and her suffering. And guys, if you're learning what not to say, uh, or yeah, what not to say to a woman who's struggling with infertility, then look at what Elkanah says, because that is what you do not say. See, she's struggling to have kids, and his voice is, hey, you know what? Why are you weeping? And why are you not eating? And, and why is your heart so sad? This is all in verse 8. And then he says, very selfishly, am I not more than, than 10 sons to you? Man, how selfish is that? Like, she's struggling with not having kids, and his response is, I am better than kids. Like, let's just make it about me. Like, I can fix everything. Just look at me. And what's happening is he's saying, if you want your peace, if you want your salvation, you want your freedom, man, it's found in male approval. Look at me. This is where you're going to find your happiness and your joy. And she doesn't found salvation through, ch- through children, like Panina says, nor through her husband, through male affection. What's fascinating is if you come to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it'll be on the screen. encourage you to look there in your Bibles. Her response is not, there's hope because of my husband. There's hope because I have kids. No, she starts this big praise to the Lord and says this, my heart extols in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Wait, wait. My heart extols in my child? My heart, my horn is exalted in my husband? In male affection? No, in the Lord. My mouth derides in my enemies. Why? Because I rejoice in your salvation. And then she says, there is none holy like the Lord. For there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. She's like, this is where salvation is found. This is where the freedom that I'm looking for is found. It is found in the Lord, not in circumstances, whether they change or they don't change. My joy is no longer found in having kids or male affection, but in the Lord. There is no rock like our God. What she's stating there is that the Lord is a better source of our identity, our security, and our happiness than anything else this world has to offer. Than anything. And Hannah goes on to to sing about God's unfathomable nature and wisdom and power and strength and holiness through chapter 2. It's amazing. Now, we don't have time to go through all of chapter 2 this morning, but at even the start of it, the first two verses that we just read that you see on the screen, these verses should, should, if you've been around the Bible and you've been around church long enough, should bring reminiscence to our mind of another prayer. Another prayer. If you fast forward all the way to Luke chapter 1, verse 46 and 47, and you find Mary, another woman who shouldn't have a child, and God provides a child for her, and not any child, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, our Messiah. And as she receives this child from the Lord, she praises God and almost verbatim quotes the Old Testament. She almost verbatim quotes Hannah's prayer. I encourage you to to put both of them side by side and compare what the Lord is showing us. Because as you look at it, Mary starts her prayer and she says this, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Do you see the parallel? It's almost the same thing that Hannah prayed. She's praying and, and singing and praising the Lord for the same thing that Hannah is. What is that? The salvation of the Lord. 
Mary's prayer, Mary's song, certainly the Bible, is telling you and me that Christ is the ultimate embodiment of salvation come to us. Jesus is the peak of the pattern of salvation that Hannah experienced in her life. Because Jesus is the Lord that brought not temporal salvation, but eternal salvation through his life and his death and his resurrection. You see, if you want to find the salvation that Hannah got, the freedom, the joy, the peace that Hannah got, you have to believe in the one whom Hannah points to, the ultimate son of the promise, the ultimate impossible birth, the ultimate remover of shame and guilt, the ultimate Savior, Jesus Christ. That is who this prayer points to. And Christ is the fulfillment. Would we look to him and believe in him today? Pray with me. Father, thank you that you are the God of the impossible. And we are the people of great pain and suffering. And so we come to you not in our strength or in our ability, but because we are weak and we need you to move. We believe as we look at this passage that there's so much potential when we're willing to humble ourselves before you and pray and say we are your servant. Lord, that is ultimately where salvation begins for us. That we would look to Jesus and say you are the Lord. Lord, we are weak and needy. We need your forgiveness. We need you to wipe away our sins. We need you to give us the freedom that we long for. And it's not found in family. It's not found in our job. It's not found in acceptance in our world. It's found in acceptance through you. And we know that that acceptance can come only through your son, Jesus. And so thank you, Lord. Thank you for making a way that we could be saved. God, thank you for making a way that we could know without a shadow of a doubt that our prayers are heard and that we we can approach the throne of grace with confidence because of what Christ has done. And so, Lord, we want to respond. We want to respond to that truth this morning by bringing our our burdens of pain before you and praying. But also for some of us, bringing our sin and asking you to save us. As you save us, God, we will be faithful to share this good news of salvation with others. So, Lord, we respond now. We respond to your grace given to us through your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Church, let's stand now. Let's praise the one who's praiseworthy.